This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest, Ken McLeod. Among the topics explored in this conversation are the engagement in spiritual practice with beings and deities, how to negotiate when entering into the ontology of a spiritual system, how to pray, the valuation implicit in focused attention, and the release of control in the deepening of spiritual practice. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Kin began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Kin is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. It's good to be here again. It's great to have you, and um, I'll get started on this conversation um, with a question that has been on my mind since I read one of your Unfettered Mind newsletters just this week, in fact. And um, I'll frame the question without referencing the specifics, but that'll probably come up in, as we address it. Actually, I think it would be better if you oh. started with the specific. Okay. Well, in, in that case, I'll, I'll, I'll point out that in, in this discussion in the, in the newsletter that you wrote and that I read, I was really taken by one particular point. And... One, one aspect of, the, of what you were presenting in the newsletter was um, offering prayer to or engaging in prayer with a teacher or other person or being. I think you said being. Figure, I think. Figure? Yeah. It could have been, okay. So um, uh, it could be anything. <laughs> <laughs> In that case, fill in the blank. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, so um, it was the uh, other figure part of this um, um, formulation that that struck me because I have myself been exploring different aspects of a kind of um, engagement with practice that is quite different from what my my teacher offered. And it involves at least the imaginative connection with another being, a non-corporeal being as far as I know. And so 
Um, so the question that, that has come up for me um, with regard to that is, to what extent does one have to believe or accept as true an, an ontology to use that or use aspects of that ontology to deepen one's practice, to deepen one's awareness, to expand the um, field of consciousness? Well, there are about 20 questions packed into what you just said, Rob. <laughs> yes, indeed. Which, which, which means we get to have a great conversation. <laughs> if I can keep any of them straight. Stuart, your thoughts? Well, I, this question of ontology versus um, epistemology and in relationship to belief is an interesting one for me because I look at an ontology or a belief system or a, uh, a, a spiritual system as something that I enter into and allow it to do something. Uh, to me, every, every system has some transformational potential and I enter into it. So for purposes of entering into it, I adopt the ontology. But the ontology that I adopt, that is, and just, you know, to unpack that word, what I believe is real um, in that system isn't ultimate because, you know, I can exit the system and go into another system and then believe that system for purposes of the practices, the frame of mind, the relationship, etc., etc., and then allow that system to do its work on me. So for me, I look at the question of what is real as a provisional question, and there's an ultimate sense of what is real, but that transcends all of the different systems. Ah, the waters grow <laughs> broader and deeper. <laughs> Well, I'm going to introduce another dimension to the framework we're establishing for okay. this conversation. Uh, <clears throat> on Friday, I uh, was at Armstrong Woods with a young uh, Turkish couple who are students of my uh, friend Hokai, friend and colleague Hokai in uh, Croatia, and you've both talked with him at least once, if not a couple of times. Twice, yeah. yeah. Three times. Oh, three times? Yes. And uh, we went to the part of Armstrong Woods where there's an open-air theater, uh, which is quite lovely. You know, this wooden benches set in this glade, basically a glade in the middle of these redwoods. And while we were there, one of the park guides, hosts, <clears throat> rode up on a bicycle and started chatting with us and we asked him some questions about the park. And, and then he said, do you know why it's so quiet in Armstrong Woods? <clears throat> Excuse me. And we both, we looked at him and said, No. Well, he said, before I took this job, <clears throat> I'd been told that the reason that the, this particular valley 
is so quiet with all the redwoods is that the uh, gods were angry with humans and had told the animals to have nothing to do with humans. So there aren't there are very few animals here. <clears throat> but when I was being trained for this position, I was uh, strongly disabused of this explanation, and was told that the reason why the woods are so quiet is because the tannin, the, the bark of the uh, redwoods, which as you know is very thick, uh, is so full of tannin that it discourages and uh, pushes away insects. It acts as an insect repellent. And because there's no insects, then there are no small birds, no uh, small reptiles and things to eat them, or very few. And then there are no larger predators, so there are no animals in the woods. And that's why there are no animals in the woods, and that's why it's so quiet there. At which point I turned to my Turkish companions and said, both explanations are equally valid. And uh, afterwards, uh, we were having lunch together, and they brought up that, that comment that I made. <clears throat> so I think one of the things that is often overlooked with respect to ontology, and I didn't appreciate until I was doing some reading in AI, artificial intelligence, Uh, one of the things that uh, they quickly discovered when, uh, for instance, DARPA's contest to make a, a car that could guide itself over a certain distance, this is years ago now, but it's what gave rise to actually self-driving cars, was mm-hmm. this DARPA contest, uh, because people were just trying to program robots to see the world basically as humans. But when they had a very fixed motive, then they could program the robot to discern what was relevant to the accomplishment of that objective in the environment and things that would be get in the way of it. And from this they came to the understanding that ontologies are always based on a motivation. Mm. And that is that is left out of so many philosophical discussions of ontology that there is a motivation and you can I mean how does a world appear to an amoeba well amoeba is basically only got since it, it doesn't require anything else for reproduction it just does mitosis there's only one thing amoeba is interested in food right and that's and that determines what's real to an amoeba anything that isn't food doesn't matter so- so I, I, I have to add to this just in terms of um, some topics we've talked about way in the past uh, on our show, but there's a work that's um, been done by a researcher called, named Donald Hoffman. Yes. And um, uh, the uh, he wrote a book very recently, the last two years, called The Case Against Reality. Yes. And he describes, he has, there's two elements of his book. The first part touches on what you're saying, which is that perceptual systems, uh, what we see as real is completely tuned by meeting the needs of the organism. 
and he has this wonderful example of, I believe it's the jewel beetle in um, Australia. The jewel beetle is kind of brown and shiny, and and, and so it sees the world um, in a certain way, and when it wants to mate, it's looking for a brown and shiny um, creature. Well, there was this problem in Australia where uh, there was a beer brand that was in a, a brown bottle, and uh, uh, in the outback, people were throwing these out of their cars when they finished the beer. And literally, the males were gathering on these beer bottles, and they wouldn't mate. And it became such an issue. They were trying easy, to mate. They were trying to mate, yes. <laughs> but it became such an issue that the uh, government had to like regulate the disposal of these beer bottles because they didn't want the species to go extinct. But it's a fast, you know, there was like no adaptation. It was like there's this perfectly tuned system. The perception, the world of this uh, uh, jewel beetle was to see this beer bottle as the mate. And there's other examples as well. Like, like uh, they've been able to look at dragonflies and realize that there's a certain polarization of light that they get off of water, which is where they want to go and land and lay eggs. But uh, that same polarization or that same quality of light uh, comes up from both oil slicks and uh, polished tombstones. And there have been these situations where dragonflies will like, go lay eggs on a tombstone or go into an oil, you know, an oil pool. And, and, and it's because their sensory apparatus is tuned for the, this very specific purpose. So I, I think that's very interesting, and I th- uh, this throws this opens a very some very interesting doors to the whole conversation. Uh, so, but I, I want to uh, recast what, something what you said. Their sensory apparatus is attuned. Um, that is. Let's take a look at from. The, the dragonfly's point of view rather than the, the human point of sure. view. Sure. What they see, that is what is real to them. Yes, yes, precisely. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and you see, and through no fault of their own, they're being, uh, they're attracted to things which are detrimental to them because that they see them as real, except yes. they aren't. Now, does that ever happen in human experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, though, that, 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 that is, this is a good, important distinction to make, that what's radical about Donald Hoffman's point of view is that in perceptual theory, the, the, the conventional wisdom was always that our sensory apparatuses were ever better approximations of an objective reality. And uh, and his point is there is no objective reality that the sensory apparatus uh, for all sorts of different reasons is actually creating that the, the reality what we see and what we take as real is not ultimately real. Well, borrowing a page from uh, Donald Hoffman, I think what he's saying is that uh, the tree that I see outside the window is as much a tree as a file folder on my desktop on my computer is an actual file folder. Yes. 
That, that's precisely, and in fact, he he calls this the icon uh, uh, iconization <laughs> theory of perception, and yeah. uses that exact example. Exactly. That, yeah. That's that, why I say I was borrowing from him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 it does bear on this conversation of ontologies because. Um, uh, well, it, I, I want to go back to Rob's uh, initial question at this point because I think. Uh, I, I don't. I don't want to yet go to your question about belief, but I want to go to mm-hmm. what you quoted from my newsletter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when we engage in spiritual practice, our priorities in the world shift. Yes. And based on what we've discussed at this, uh, even up to this point. Because our priorities have shifted, what is motivating us is different. Yes. We begin to see and experience the world in a different way. And I don't think that is taken into account, particularly in Western society, where we have been so um, conditioned to the view of, which really goes back to Descartes, of a sensor in here and an external reality out there. I, th- I think that's right, but I, but, I, but I will point out that I, but I think people actually do have a sense of what they don't want other people to take seriously or believe or be motivated by. And so when, um, uh, you know, I was in an airport recently and Hare Krishna's, this was in Norway actually, and um, uh, uh, and and so th- this is just a slight complication to to the formulation that, that you're offering, but uh, but I want to uh, also add in my question that arose when Stuart first responded to what you what you had to say, um, Ken, earlier in the conversation, and he was talking about shifting from one ontology to another ontology, kind of. At least using, and 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 I'm sympathetic to that view because I'm I am persuaded by the, by Levi Strauss's uh, bricoleur um, example of you pick up a tool that's useful and when you're done with whatever task it's useful for you put it down and then you might pick up another tool and in that sense ontologies can be construed as resembling that that sort of example, but. My question is, arising out of Stuart's comment, is what lingers, what lingers from the shift in human psychology from one ontology to another ontology? And it's, it, it's relevant to me because, as I started off by saying, my own teacher had no... Um, or very well. That's not true, but he had very little sense of the kind of work that I'm doing now, with um, stimulated by my exposure to the ideas uh, discussed by a native Californian friend of ours, as well as um, another uh, friend who works with uh, um, these African uh, traditions. 
indigenous traditions. So, so here we are, Westerners. At least this is from my situation. Here I am, a Westerner, and I am. At this point, it seems like finally, I'm letting go of the of the grip that I had upon and the ontology, the Western scientific uh, ontology that I was trained in. I'm letting go of that and exploring this uh, these other possibilities. What li- what lingers from one to another? Well, <clears throat> I think it's a very interesting question. And uh, as you were talking and thinking about that question, I think it's helpful to go back to the point that I made earlier, that ontologies are based on a motivation, Mm -hmm. a different motivation. So if we recast your question... When you are shifting from one ontology to another, you're actually shifting from one way of looking at the world to another, or understanding the world, whatever term you want. Mm -hmm. And the reason you're doing that is because the motivation, what is important to you in the world, has changed. And by the world, I mean everything, not just the world out there. The world in here, I mean, Mm -hmm. everything that we experience. And so what is of interest to you? What what are the questions that you have? What what do you want to explore? All of that has changed. And the uh, scientific ontology no longer serves a purpose. Yeah. And, and, and so but when you cast it in terms of a change in motivation and that is actually acknowledged, then the question about what lingers is, uh, becomes, I think, um, more accessible because what lingers is our attachment to that other motivation. It may not be a complete transfer. For some people, it's, you know, they just lose interest in it at all. But for a lot of people, well, there's that way of looking at things too. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and here we have, uh, you know, the way that we try to hold on to things through which we are identified. Uh, and I think that's, that, that's what causes us to hold on on to one way or view, rather than there's something out there that lingers. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of working with the word motivation and uh, uh, the word valuation comes up. Uh, the, the only reason I say valuation is motivation to me implies a little bit of the transactional and I don't. I don't know that if I. I I'm not going to quarrel about yeah. motivation or valuation. I get it. But 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 but, uh, but my values change, and I can give you you know an example. If I go from uh, a Western mindset, even to some extent, the framework that uh, I've worked in in the Fourth Way tradition, and then move to an ind- indigenous practice like the West African Dogra tradition. What one of the primary the real obvious shifts I found was that it went from something that was more objectified to something that was more relational. And I found that the relational actually was a way in to uh, what in the fourth way we would call my feeling or emotional center in a way that was... uh, unique and different and uh, more vitalizing than what I would 
what I had found in the version of the fourth way that I had worked in. I'm not going to make yeah. an exclusive statement about the fourth way, but I'll just say that on average, that tends to be, most people tend to be more focused in the intellectual center in the fourth way tradition, not exclusively by any means. Uh, but in this dogma tradition, it's all relation. I mean, it's because it comes out of a culture that was completely relational. I mean, if I, if I even read the works of some of the West Africans who were raised in this tradition and write books for the West, it's all about relation, family, community. Uh, you do not exist except in terms of your relationships with your family, your village, the, the earth around you. And See, that's a very good example of, of whether you call it motivation or evaluation. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, uh, but you're taught from a very young age that that's what's of value. And so you see the terms and see, you interpret what arises in experience in terms of those values. Now, most people are unaware of how the values that they hold are causing them to filter what they experience. I had, I had this. Uh, and this is something that's been explored in systems theory, etc., and leads to what uh, is called in some circles ladder of inference and so forth. But I had a, a very clear experience of that. There's a, um, I coached the CEO and the COO of a fresh produce company many years ago. And they're both very dedicated in, uh, individuals. The COO, uh, the CEO basically owned the company. Uh, but uh, and he was always addressing emergencies, and he, he was very good at discerning, you know, immediate action needs to be taken about this, and et cetera, et cetera. This drove his COO nuts, who was trying to institute systems, and the CEO was constantly disrupting the systems with one emergency after another. Mm-hmm. And they were they, they, they were both expressing their great frustration with each other to me. And after a little while, I went, oh, I get it. So I told them to have a conversation after the next emergency about what were the things about the emergency that you noticed and wanted to address. And just to make a list of this and compare the lists. And they found that they had noticed completely different things. And each person's action was completely rational when you looked at what he noticed. And they could understand why, the CEO could understand why the COO was focused on systems. And the COO could understand why the CEO was focused on crises. Things like that. And they began to see that this was because they valued things differently and it led them to filter experience differently, which led them to act differently. Now most people are completely unaware of how much that process is operating in us. Yeah. And I don't know... I don't think it's actually explicitly... Uh, I don't think it's made explicit in most spiritual traditions either. Because most spiritual traditions have a very clear... 
idea of what they value, and they interpret everything in terms of that in order to be able to lay a basis for practice and how you should behave in the world and what you should do, etc. I mean, so the valuation is leading to a motivation, a set of motivations in that as well. But until there is some understanding that these very deep-seated valuations and motivations are active in this, you actually can't have a conversation. Uh, or if you do, it's simply about positions. Going, it's a, it becomes an earth war, a war of attrition, and it, it just doesn't go anywhere because it's, it's all conflict. Well, you're, th- thank you, and you're, you're using this uh, particular example to talk about how different individuals interact with each other and I also want to, though, bring the attention back to within an individual. I think you're absolutely right, Rob. Go on. So, so, so for example, in, in my own case, you know, Stuart spoke about his training in the fourth way and how um, the system of evaluation, as he uh, uh, described it, is different in this Dabra tradition that, that he's uh, engaging with. And I'm... Um, as I've, if you will, relaxed my my the grip, the uh, uh, um, the grip that I've my mind and emotions have had on the um, views of the fourth way and what's important. Nevertheless, I find that I'm still using a lot of that training and bringing it to my engagement with this Native Californian perspective, particularly, the, and, and it's really the foundational view of the fourth way, to use a neutral witness awareness or consciousness to cultivate that, to, um, um, and that's not something that the Native Californian uh, uh, perspective has any value for, and yet, and nevertheless, I, I, I actually find it useful to bring that to my engagement with the um, the practices that I've been engaging in outside the fourth way. That makes perfect sense <clears throat> because you developed a uh, an ability to. Um, rest in attention and not be distracted by the automatic reactions that arise and mm-hmm. when one's in, engaging somebody like the little movements of the face which indicate certain emotions which we would ordinarily um, build a viola did an extraordinary exhibit on just this subject mm-hmm. uh, in, in slow motion videos mm-hmm. Uh, which I'll come to uh, uh, mention in, in a moment. But, you know, these little uh, movements of the uh, mouth, which indicates a person smiling, which, and you would, before it would even registered consciously, be reacting to that. But part of your fourth way training was, okay, that's happening, that's just a movement, stay right here. And, and so it'll, because of that, you had to accept whatever is happening. I'm just going to be specific and, uh, on the other person's face mm-hmm. without any judgment, because as soon as you judgment, you were distracted, right? Yeah. That's, well, that's precisely put, by the way. 
Thank you. Uh, but now you're moving into, and one of the things that, because both you and Stuart have mentioned this now, one of the things I'd like to point out is that your own valuation of relationship has shifted. Uh, yes, of relation, okay. relation okay. has shifted, okay. and that's why this other work is of interest to you. Because you, something you recognized it wasn't being fed mm-hmm. or responded there, and so that's the change in how how you uh, what you value in your environment. Mm-hmm. And you said your your teacher didn't have that; he had his own way of relating to relationships and so forth. But now, when you come to this and you're sitting uh, and they're talking or you're learning about relationship. You can bring that completely non-judgmental, non-judgmental attention to bear, and allows you to experience what is happening there in a qualitatively different way. Mm, yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, to be fair to my teacher, um, it it wasn't him because he would bring up stuff not unrelated to what I'm getting from <laughs> from the. From the uh, uh, it was it was it was my capacity. Uh, or, or absence of capacity to to go where he was going ah. in the way that he was going okay. um, at the time, and you know, in retrospect, I can I can say, oh well, I just wasn't. Yeah. It, it it wasn't meaningful to me then. It, it, it didn't or it didn't it didn't compute based on the other aspects of what he was how he was training me. Uh, it was for this reason that when I was teaching, I would often dig around in a person until I found an area in their life where they had learned focused, undistracted attention. Hmm. And it might be in music, it might be in athletics, it might be... You know, I would just, I'd try to find an area. Mm-hmm. And then I would use that as a basis for helping them to develop a meditation practice. Hmm. Well, it, it, what you describe is uh, resonates for me in the, the sense that when I engage in the community of practitioners uh, in this in the Western manifestation of the Dogra tradition. That um, so, you know, I don't. I just want to say there, there's a community in this area that I'm, I'm engaged in. When I look at how they process certain things, or how they uh, uh, what they struggle with, and when I look at elders in that community and see how they've grown. I see that there's, I both appreciate our own training in terms of the emphasis on the the witness and the efficacy of that. I see there are other ways in which that can be developed or learned, but I also appreciate the um, um, efficiency, as as it were, of uh, of the fourth way practice, that because I... And I can, I can. So, so for me, coming into this tradition is different. I'm not coming in as a beginner um, from and from a spiritual point of view. So, so I'm not going in completely raw. You already have tools. I already have tools, and I already have developed a certain something that um, already changes the way I engage with things. Yeah, and. That's an inter- there's an interesting kind of paradox, and I think this 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 might actually bear on um, some of the questions that you may uh, have been wrestling with in terms of trying to 
convey deity practice to a Western audience, for instance, and that's that what I just described, there's something different about me when I go into this tradition that's different than where, where I've been before that doesn't go away. I mean, that, that's, that's like just part of who I am, and then I engage with the tradition. I distinguish that from the other challenge, which is when someone in a, with a Western mindset goes into an indigenous tradition, uh, you know, people can bring I was just going to their mindset yeah. and their expectations <clears throat> and their framework, and then they filter everything through that. Yeah. And, and that's problematic. I mean, we, Rob and I were, had given a talk this summer with some, uh, in a podcast some friends held where we were talking about this, about indigenous traditions versus the fourth way. And we were quoting a mutual friend of ours who was describing his language was, when you go into an indigenous tradition, you have to be passive to it. But we, what, how we understand that is not passive in the sense of uh, being reprogrammed. It's more like you have to hold in check the reactive mechanisms in you that would interpret things in terms of the framework that you're coming from. I I, I agree with you very much there. I would go a bit further uh, and reference uh, Rob's uh, mention of uh, Levi-Strauss's metaphor of a tool. I think what you're talking about is the tendency of someone coming from just for purpose of this discussion from a Western perspective and go and we'll use this tool or use that tool and just pick these things up rather arbitrarily which is kind of a um, exploitive uh, maybe there's a better term for that but it feels a bit exploitive to me uh, as as opposed to what I sense is happening for you and uh, as I know that I've uh, has happened for me is that I engaged Tibetan Buddhism, I engaged quite deeply, but it wasn't it wasn't to use the tools and maintain my Western perspective. It was because I was looking for something and that's that's what drew me into it. And so I, I think this goes back to the what we were discussing earlier about recognizing the relationship between ontology and motivation or evaluation, to use your term, Stuart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I think, has to be really uh, important. And when, when you're, you're, you, you actually value what is in the other tradition and say one of these indigenous traditions, and, and that, that is coming from your heart, it's, it's a real value for you, not an assumed value or an espoused value, then then you can approach it with some sincerity. And I think that's what your friend was referencing to when he said passivity. Yes. And uh, But this leads me to... Uh, I want to go back to the uh, comment about prayer, because I want to talk a little bit about prayer here. Uh, I practiced what's called in the Tibetan tradition Guru Yoga, Laminalger is the actual Tibetan Guru Yoga, is the Sanskrit, uh, can be translated into English as teacher union. Uh, and I practiced this, I did a lot of it because it's so basic, uh, not, not in terms of elementary, but in terms of pervasive. I mean, it's a really, really important thing which covers every stage of practice from the very beginning right to the most sophisticated and subtle uh, mystical practices in the Tibetan tradition that your relationship with your teacher and uh, 
praying to your teacher is a central element. Uh, it's just always there. Uh, not everybody practices that way, but in the traditional text, that's how it is presented. And, <clears throat> and I thought about this a lot. And eventually, and th- this uh, what I'm describing here is my own um, separation, in a certain sense, from the intellectual Western view, a way of valuing the world, and said, you know, what, what you're really doing here in this teacher union practice is you're forming an emotional relationship with your teacher who is, you regard as an expression of emptiness or Buddhahood or whatever you want. And, and it's a way of forming an emotional relationship as opposed to a conceptual relationship. That was my first step. But that too began to change over time. And uh, and then when I was beginning to work on this book and think about it deeply, oh, I, we should we should reference for listeners that, that Ken has just completed um, and is in the process of doing the final um, uh, minor edits to a new volume called "The Magic of Vajrayana." Thank you, Rob. Uh, the I had to think the thing the kind of thing that um, puzzled me and and actually bothered me is that this teacher union practice is central to Vajrayana practice and the practice in the practice of teacher union practice your principal method is prayer but nobody tells you how to pray in the Tibetan uh, tradition, you mean? Or, or anywhere. Well, uh, <laughs> this, that's another whole conversation, but yeah. I'm, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember meeting with, uh, as a, in my capacity as a translator, uh, Rinpoche met with um, one of the archbishops in Toronto. And that was his question for Rinpoche, mm. was, how do you pray? Now, I was very unsophisticated at that point. I didn't really understand the full implications of that question at the time, and I, I regret that I did not do a good job translating it. But the, uh, uh, but since then, I've come to appreciate, you know, and prayer was a very, very important part of my own uh, spiritual growth, really, and development. And I talk about that in the book, how, how, how that, how and why. But when I was trying to figure out how do I, how do I say this in a way, I realized that, and this goes straight to your point about valuation, Stuart. There's something I want to know that's really important to me. The practice of prayer is a way of reaching out to what I don't know and forming a relationship with it. Mm. Now it becomes very important to me. And I do this through words and things like that, but the, the actual practice of prayer is a reaching out to what I don't know, which can be represented, going back to this representation theory we were discussing before, as my teacher and is in all of the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, but can also be represented by a historical figure like a, a teacher who's died. Uh, I, I wrote a uh, practice called The Magic of Faith, 
in which Nigama, who's an 11th century mystic uh, uh, and a, a, one of the progenitors of the tradition in which I was trained but uh, a surprising number of people have taken that practice and they, and, and they pray to her now mm-hmm. uh, because she represents or it, it, they feel this connection she embodies or represents in some way what they seek to know and or it could be a, a, a figure like Avalokiteshvara or a deity or something like that. And this goes back to your question about the ontology. It isn't a question of you believing in the ontology. It's that this expression now becomes meaningful to you. So the question of its reality doesn't even arise. Well, that's, this is really interesting to me and in the, in the, the, the aspect that was leaping up, leaping up in my mind as you were just speaking is, is that, um, you know, I, when I first met my teacher, he used to talk about, he didn't speak about God, he'd talk about the universe, or the, the entirety of all that is, you know, to use a Virginian phrase. Just brought in another memory, but please go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll invite you to uh, get to that when I'm done. Um, but, uh, um, so... I tried to use that formulation, and it's and I and I'm finding as I'm engaging with this indigenous tradition um, outside the fourth way, I'm finding that it is really helpful to have a personification, and in one case, it's you know it's the idea of an archangel, and I get that. You can you can say an archangel is a, is an energetic pattern in the universe, or or some other some other abstract formulation. But the it's the it's the it's the creation, it's the invocation of a relationship to something that is discernible on the human emotional level. I think. That is really important, and and I was just um, I did I didn't know, for example, that you had um, that some of your uh, people that you've touched have, have picked up the this practice of because I, I gather from the way you said that Naguma is not generally used in this way as someone that you establish a relationship with until you brought that to the West or, or brought that out in your work. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're probably right. <laughs> Oops. Well, that's what I mean. Well, that, I mean, that's what jumped out at me, and and I think uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there, I, there's a genre of practices in the Tibetan tradition which are called Lama practice or Guru practices, Lama yeah. practices, right. in which you use a historical figure, mm-hmm. and basically that's what I, I that's the practice I wrote, uh, but. Uh, for a variety of reasons, because partly because of the poetry and the people, and partly because of what she represents, partly because of her historical importance, uh, people connect with her. Yeah, and uh, so and I, and that's what I'm finding with with this um, archangelic well, um, the, uh, see, I, I connection think, that I'm creating. I, I, I think you're, you're saying something that's quite important here. And uh, here I'm, I'm rather critical of Jung here, 
Mm, okay. Uh, because he gave a language, archetypes, mm-hmm. in which these could be uh, regarded as, and I may be being unfair to Jung, fine, as abstract yeah. re- representations. Um, but as long as you regard them as abstract representations, then we're in the territory that Stuart was referring to, where you are bringing, uh, you're just adopting this method without uh, without acknowledging its personal importance yeah. uh, to you. But when you move into, as, as both of you have described with your uh, work with the um, indigenous Californians, where this is something that's intensely meaningful. That kind, uh, you drop, you're prepared to drop that framework because it's no longer relevant, the scientific or um, whatever you want to call it, rational framework, because for what you are seeking, it's not actually relevant. In fact, it's an obstacle. Okay. Uh, and can, or can be an well, obstacle. Well, if you try to maintain it, then yeah, it becomes right. an obstacle, yes. Right, right. Uh, and so... That, I think, I mean, Green Tara is another figure in the Tibetan tradition which an awful lot of people um, connect with very powerfully in the West because it represents a possibility that um, is not. And and as you and I have discussed before, and as I mentioned in my book, the closest analogy that I've been able to figure out for meditation deities, or yidams as they're called in the Tibetan tradition, in the West are patron saints in the Catholic Church. They're not the same by any means, but there is a, an overlap of, uh, of uh, the functions they serve in their, yeah. their, their systems. And, but as I say in the book, and as was very important, you have to form a personal relationship mm-hmm. with a patron saint. Uh, it's not something arbitrary. It's something yeah. that me- means, you know, this is how you relate to it. And the other factor here is that you talked about it being represented in, in some anthropomorphic. You didn't use that word, but abstract. Yeah, yes. no, no, but it's some. Oh, oh, oh I see. It, it had to be a figure. Yes, you know, right. it, it couldn't be just an abstract principle. Right. And I think that's very important because in forming the relationship. We form relationships with human beings so that it has to have some quasi-human form actually is, one could see, as being very important. And so you have throughout the course of history, I mean, you have this with the prophets in uh, Judaism, you have it with mystics in all of the different traditions, whether Greek, Turkish, Tibetan, whatever, where they will have a vision and they will talk about it in terms of an archangel or some visionary thing, but often as something that appeared in some human form, often an embellished human form. Mm -hmm. But that is how... And that's very understandable because that's our conditioning for how our relationships form. But but then as as their practice deepened, it it actually goes beyond all form. And this takes me into another whole area. But the thing I wanted to comment on, and then I'd like to hear from Stuart, is when you talk about uh, God being replaced by the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Batchelor uh, encouraged me to look up uh, a guy called Don Leggett, who's an old, I'm not sure, I think he's still alive, uh, an Oxford Don, who's uh, very much a student of Wittgenstein. And he has looked at, he's taken very seriously Wittgenstein's um, saying that the, the meaning of a word is its use. Mm-hmm. 
and he notes that in the 17th, 18th, even up into the 19th century, when somebody died in the eulogy, they would say he or she loved God. Now that is almost always replaced by he or she loved life. Yes. And so, so he's po- positing that life has replaced the word for what I'm going to call the mystery mm-hmm. in most people's parlance. And a, a very good friend of mine, uh, someone who opened all the doors to consulting, he was originally a student, but became a very, very good friend. He died a few years ago, and his wife asked me uh, to uh, deliver the eulogy at what was called a celebration of life. Not a memorial service, not a funeral, but a celebration of life. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, it's actually that, that phraseology I see a lot. Yeah. And it can be interpreted as a denial of death, but it also may have something deeper in it. I think it does. I mean, I, I, I see that in, when I relate to the imminence of death of people like like. You know, my mother um, is 96, going on 97, and, you know, I know I will be present for her death within some, you know, reasonably short period of time, statistically speaking. And so celebration of life to me isn't a denial of of, uh, the death, but just an appreciation of the extent of living and there's a mystery I, 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 there can be a mystery now now the problem the problem is that when most people in secular society talk about a celebration of life that they're they're trying to accentuate this person was engaged they're happy da, 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 you know all these conventional things they're not really looking at what is this thing like well, why, why, why are we here I went to a memorial service for the, the uh uh, a woman that I knew, his wife of a friend of mine, uh, so, several years ago. And uh, it was in Marin, and it was the typical Marin thing. Everything was just so nice. <laughs> uh, I may have been to the same one, I suspect n- you're referring to. No. You oh, no, it was a different one. It was a different one. Okay. Uh, and I came back, and I was sufficiently annoyed about the whole thing. <laughs> mainly because a friend of the woman who died hit on me. <laughs> I just thought, this is so tacky. <laughs> just, uh, uh, I, so I came back, and uh, Jim was still at the bookstore at this point, of course, mm-hmm. and I walked in and uh, said to Jim, what is the function of a wake? Because Jim's got an Irish background. And Jim looked at me and thought for a moment. He said... It's to settle old scores. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I can so relate to that. <laughs> because and he said people get together and they start drinking and they start telling stories. And after a while, they've had a little too much or maybe just enough. Somebody says, you know, he's a really good guy in this. But, you know, he borrowed that shovel of mine and he never returned the damn thing. <laughs> And so it, it was a way for people to get everything off their chest hmm. with respect to the person who had died. So in, in, in that way, it was a, a complete separation. Hmm. I thought that, so. 
uh, and that's a different twist on the, on the, yeah. the life aspect. But uh, that seemed to me to be very important. So I've decided I'm putting in my will that if anybody organize no, if any orga- body organizes something, the only thing. The people who have something positive to say about me don't need to say anything. Only the people who have something negative to say about me can speak. There you go. <laughs> because they need to get it off their chest. <laughs> well, you know no one's going to pay attention to that anyway. <laughs> Probably not. One can hope. <laughs> so I wanted to go back a little bit to the, you know, uh, we were talking about the relational and a you know, deity practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was coming up for me in regard to uh, my work in the African Dagara tradition is the uh, centrality of shrines and the idea with a shrine that, um, and this is not exclusive to this tradition, other traditions have a similar sensibility, but the shrine is not just a shrine and it's not a representation. It becomes, it's the home of the the spirit or the deity that is being uh, uh, focused on and that part of the ontology is that it is the deity and you relate to it and you you know you tend to the shrine you freshen it up you bring flowers to it you give it attention it becomes a axis around your way of serving the deity right and and what I found in this Again, you know, one, one observation was that being relational, it uh, will tend to activate my heart. <clears throat> now, like most relationships, you have to freshen that, you know, because it can go dry. And, the, and, the, and there's, you know, whole things that you might have to do a ritual if you, you've gone dry in order to sort of uh, 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 sweeten the pot again. But um, I also found, from an ontological point of view, that things would happen in the course of this relationship that uh, defied uh, my objective Western mind. Magical things would happen, or either coincidences, or even you know, uh, translocation of materials, or things like that. And that has caused me, you know, although it was at one level consistent with my belief system the actual direct experience of it causes a, a kind of a deepening appreciation that the western ontology that we're coming from is not the the ground state of truth uh, and then these other ontologies are things that we sort of pretend to uh, go into in order to achieve something but that the western ontology is just like uh, a, a, an indigenous ontology a separate kind of world with its rules and things like that, but it's not any more true than that, the that's, other. That's which exactly. gets back to your story in the Armstrong Redwoods. You know? Exactly. It's like, yes, it's, like, yeah. it's like we have this as Westerners. We even even when we approach spiritual traditions from different cultures, we have this idea that we've somehow got the inside scoop on the way things are, and then we all sort of put up with the. Um, as uh, secularists like Sam Harris will call it, the Baroque religiosity of other traditions. Oh. Uh, but it's like... <laughs> I've, it's, got, I've got to tell you this. Okay. One time I was sitting in my teacher's room with him. He said, Ken, where does rain come from? 
What is? Rain. And I went, well, he said, according to Western thought, where does rain come from? Well, the sun shines on the ocean and water evaporates from the ocean, goes high in the sky, cools down, becomes clouds, and the clouds, uh, uh, and from the, the clouds, rain falls. And Rinpoche sat there for a few minutes and he said, that's absolutely not true. If that were true, Los Angeles wouldn't be a desert. <laughs> <laughs> and because there's a whole bunch of complexity that's in that, which he didn't appreciate and be too difficult. But from their from their point of view, when they came out of Tibet, their worldview was the right one. The world was flat, and they knew why, how things formed like that. And it took them, you know, in the older generation, most of them never adjusted. But the, uh, and this was shattering because I remember the Lama that uh, Rinpoche left in Vancouver, uh, he and I were invited to um, teach to a small center up in um, Whitehorse yeah. in the Yukon. And uh, I knew of a few of the people, so the first night we were there, uh, he went, this, and this was in May, so it's, it's about 300 miles south of the Arctic Circle. Yeah, yeah, uh, but just to make sure I understand you, the, the, the Lama you're talking about was a, a Tibetan. A Tibetan, oh yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I was there for, to translate. And uh, so I went out with a bunch of people, and we drove up the Alaskan Highway, which mm-hmm. runs through Whitehorse, you know, several miles to visit somebody that they knew. And it was 11 o'clock at night, and it was a deep dusk. It wasn't dark because it was that far north, but it wasn't so far north that the sun was still up. And then I came back and went to bed and got up the next day. And the Lama went in to see him and had breakfast with him. And he was, Ken, what happened last night? And nothing. It didn't get dark. What's happening? Uh-huh. And he was visibly upset because the possibility of it not getting dark at night was something completely out of his um, yeah. repertoire. So I explained about you know, the sun and the tilt of the Earth's axis and things like that. And he went, oh, well, maybe some, there's something to the Western point of view. <laughs> but I didn't realize how deeply rattled he was until we went to the airport two years later to greet Rinpoche, uh, our teacher, who'd returned for another visit. And he greeted him at the airport with the traditional white scarves. And the very first thing he said, do you know that in the north of Canada it doesn't get dark at night? (laughs) (sighs) And I went, oh my God, this really rattled him because it had shaken his whole worldview in the same way that when we... We, we feel that our whole worldview is shaken if we deny that there is an external reality out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a, a, a good example. And I think when we approach different ontologies, we should, you know, part of the value of that is to prepare to have your unexamined beliefs but about things shaken. I'm going to push a little bit on this. 
I'm going to encourage you to think not in terms of anthologies, but in terms of valuations. Yeah. Because it's the valuation that gives rise to what you're calling an ontology. Yes, I think that's fair um, in that. And as long as you're talking about ontologies, you're not talking about what is actually right. connecting in the heart. You're right, because ontologies is more of an uh, analytic device or a way of... Like, it's an abstract philosophical yeah, it, it, term. It, yes, it's the conceptual categories that we use to yeah. make sense of what's yeah. happening, whereas... If the valuation is relational, then this is all, what's important. Yeah, yeah then, then it's like that becomes more central, and that's what's yeah. real. And when that's more real, then all of a sudden, um, uh, other categories of reality become yeah. more fluid. I mean, we have this in, in in Western. You put a psych a psychologist and a uh, financial advisor together, and give them a family that's having problems those two people will come to completely different evaluations of what the family should do. Yeah. You see? And they'll have an argument about it. But it's because one training values this, the other training values that. That's what's important. Neither is absolutely right. Neither is absolutely wrong. And But people are so unaware of the relationship between what they value and how they perceive the world. And this is something, in all honesty, that I feel I'm only beginning to become aware of. Yeah, that's... Uh, this is leading me to a, um, a question that gets back to you know, what Rob touched on with cultivating a perspective that is um, uh, a neutral or uh, an objective witness that is senior to identification born out of value. I won't. I won't go so far yet to say that that witness doesn't necessarily embody a certain kind of valuation, but the, but certainly it is free from identifying unconsciously with the consequences of valuation. Yeah. So talking about that is that. Is that awareness uh, something that is senior to valuation and senior to ontologies? Um, and uh, as such, if, if so, is that something more absolute or more fundamental? Well, the mystics would, most mystics would unequivocally say yes. Right. That's, that, that's my understanding. But I don't, uh, my, and I've thought about in my own terminology, I've thought about the same question. I had the experience, it's, it's a bit strange, uh, a woman who's a very, very capable business manager came to one of my retreats, and she was capable of really undistracted attention, and she was quite fierce in the business world. And it was an insight, uh, insight retreat. And she had an experience of emptiness, which was quite non-trivial. And she was so angry. She was really, really angry with me. Because it meant that she had to reevaluate everything in her life. Eventually, she didn't. She didn't reevaluate? No. She had no use for that reevaluation. She had no use for that experience. And she went back to where she was. And I thought, okay. 
And a, a friend of mine who's also trained in the fourth way said a, a question, you can only pursue mystical practice is if you have a use for this stuff. Um, well. And sometimes it visits you unawares and then you discover that you have a use for it, but it can visit you unawares, rock your world, and then you say, no, I don't have anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, and I think well, I, I guess I guess I, I've even know, I suppose I've known people, and that's a that's a helpful explanation for some of the outcomes that I've seen in people who have who have at least ostensibly and, and I think sincerely to some extent tried to engage with with, with practice. Yeah. I, and, and, and the other part of this, just uh, is that when you have an experience which goes to the very core of your being and shatters so many uh, assumptions or reveals so many possibilities to you, you feel that you have hit what is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But, this ex- uh, but I've come to the view, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, that those expressions of absolute truth and ultimatis- ultimaticity and all of this stuff is an, experience, is an expression of how valuable those experiences are to those individuals. And I think for to have fruitful conversations in the modern world, it has to be experienced that way. Otherwise, you create an hierarchy, a hierarchy, and then you get into my worldview is bigger than your worldview, etc. Yeah. Well, well that, that's a, there's a ways I would tie this together with earlier phases of this conversation. One is with the person you were describing in your workshop who was angry at the uh, experience of emptiness and ultimately turned away from that or turned away from what you might say are the consequences of that yes is, is that she didn't have a relationship with emptiness she didn't have a valuation for that um, and it's I don't know I would say Posit that you know she she had other valuations. Maybe she came to the workshop. You know, because so many actually high performing people get into spiritual practice because they're looking for another edge. Uh, yeah, because that's that's what's important for them. Uh, it, or they're looking for peace, or sort of stress management, or for any yeah. number of utilitarian reasons and so forth. Yeah. And <clears throat> but having a relationship uh, or evaluation of emptiness is. Kind of, that's not a common thing. I think it's something that can be cultivated. I, I suspect. I, I, I think part of the reason for many of the the sequence of training in many spiritual traditions is to prepare you so that when you have that experience, you actually do value it. Yeah, but just like you're talking about the foundational uh, role of guru yoga is is creating that foundation. Yeah, I would even say even in uh, some of the indigenous work that I've been doing, the ritual and shrines, it's all, it's all about laying this uh, foundation for valuation of the mystery. And if you don't, if you have a utilitarian relationship with practice, uh, a spiritual practice, you're not going to have that valuation. And And when something dramatic hits, like you're describing... People will tend to bracket that, and uh, 
but they can react go back to, to their they can react to it in a lot of different ways yeah I mean other people you know yeah. I, they, mean, they, they, I think they can go crazy yeah but I also think <laughs> one of the reasons that recreational drugs are uh, popular is that uh, people like to be able to uh, access something on call and then go back you know so that is in it is within their control still it is not something that's out of their control you're touching on a point that's very important here and I hadn't made the link until you just mentioned this word. The scientific worldview is looking at the world in such a way that you're able to predict and studying the world so you're able to predict what is likely to happen. And it, as such, becomes an instrument of control. Yes. And because we are so permeated and acculturated to this scientific worldview, that agenda for control also permeates us. And that's one of the most difficult aspects uh, uh, that people encounter. And I mentioned this several times in the book I've just written, that you have to, if you're really interested in this stuff, you have to engage these practices to the point that you're able to start letting go of that control and let the practice work on you, which is something that you and Rob have talked about uh, with me as well. Uh, because it's, it's more that the practice is working on you than I am working in the practice. But, that, but, but you've just brought up a really interesting point about Western uh, culture, which is, which is precisely that control is implicitly understood to be the highest value. Good point. Well, well, to be even more specific, I'm remembering, I think, um, I think Houston Smith said this, uh, the uh, philosopher of religion, that uh, the Western scientific model is, it, it's like, it, it can only deal with things that lend themselves to a control experiment. <laughs> that, 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 those are the only things that... Uh, it can say anything about. It can't say anything about anything else that doesn't lend itself to that. So, oh, that's a wonderful. That's a wonderful way to counter the evidence-based argument, because the only way, only evidence that uh, people who are evidence-based will will be from controlled experiments. So, if you're dealing with a phenomenon. You know, in, in human experience, that is sub, not subject to that, then there's not going to be any evidence. Right. There can't be any evidence. I mean, that, that's the problem with the scientific study of mysticism. Uh, you know, you can look for correlates in the brain for mystical experiment, uh, mystical states, and things like that. But uh, uh, there's an implied assumption that causality is brain to experience as opposed to experience to brain so you can't you know and I think it's a dead end path it's just basically it's something that you can't everything is reduced to a uh, materialist yeah, well, okay, uh, to a controlled experiment yeah. uh, ex experiment because that's the only way science can make a statement that is universally verifiable um Whereas, Object objectively verifiable. Yeah, whereas, I mean, this this kind of gets into this the the triad that uh, we've we've talked about from uh, this guy Lionel Snell and his My Years of Magical Thinking, uh, where he talks about the scientific mindset, the religious mindset, the magical mindset, and the artistic mindset. And in the magical mindset, 
your valuations based off of does something work? Does some the, do I ha- does it work for me in terms of an experiment? So if I do some sort of ritual, if I do some sort of practice, and I get a result, it's not a result that generalizes because uh, you could do take a hundred people and they could do the same thing and they wouldn't have the same result that I have, but still magically it's valid for me because it worked. It worked, and that's what's that's what matters. Whereas science is more about can I take the person out of it and then uh, replicate the uh, uh, experiment multiple times to get the same result. It's very interesting. Because I, I, from hanging out with Rinpoche, I came to appreciate that he viewed the world magically. Uh, For instance, the way he would determine whether he could trust somebody Mm -hmm. is that he would give them a task to do. If they could perform, if if they performed the task, then he trusted them. It didn't matter how bright they were, how capable they were. He trusted them because they performed the task. Uh, if they if he gave them a task and it didn't work out, he didn't trust them. Uh, it didn't matter how bright they were, or how capable they were. If they ran into some kind of problem that would have defeated anybody, it didn't matter. It just didn't work. Interestingly enough, you get the same thing in Hollywood. That when people are making movies, because there's so much money being spent so quickly when you're making a movie, mm-hmm. like it's probably now ten thousand dollars an hour or something, you know. Uh, then, <clears throat> and and the big thing is at the end of sixty days, which is the average length of a shoot. Do you have a movie or not? You know, because you've spent a hundred million or two hundred million dollars by then, or whatever, and. So the studios want to know. So because of this, the directors will work with the same group of people because they know that if they work with uh-huh. that group of people, the movie will get made. <laughs> may not be the best movie. They may not be the best people, but it will get made. There will be a product. <laughs> hmm. And that's a kind of magical thinking. Yeah. Well, and, and, <clears throat> and actually, it's, it's funny because there are stories in the, the, the fourth way of... Uh, of you know, like someone's supposed to arrive for a meeting on time. But what matters is, are you there or not? It, it, you know, they'll walk the door, you know, uh, a minute after uh, the Why time. you were late is irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. What, and, <laughs> and if this came up for us, uh, I mean, um, because we were in Norway, and uh, we, had a, uh, we were in uh, western Norway, and we drove to Oslo and uh, to meet with a, a, a fourth-way teacher there and writer, that we had corresponded with and had mutual friends of, and since we were there, we thought, let's meet this guy. And so we had an appointment at, uh, you know, 6 p.m. in the theater, and and I was very conscious of, like, uh, from, well, like, days before, you know, we were planning, you know, not not rigorously or, you know, intensively, but it was in our awareness to make sure that everything worked out, that we made that appointment. Because it was, you know, well, uh, well, it, it, uh, you 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 frame it a, a little more casually than than that arose for me, because I was um, very aware of any possible obstacle, or I, or my, I guess I was tuned to notice any particular thing that could get in the way of our arrival at the precise time, and so um, we, you know, of course we set out earlier than we thought we needed to do because we're in a country we're not familiar with. There's things that could happen. 
accidents and you know happen stuff like that. But but um, I don't think of it as casual. No, no, no. I don't, and I don't mean it as casual. But but I, you, you're right. We we took as much responsibility as we could take. We took, and you know, because we had See, this strong intention. But I, I, this is a very wonderful example. <clears throat> Being at that meeting on time was a very high value for you. Yes. Okay. And because it was a very high value for you, then the world, you saw the world in a way. You were extremely sensitive to possible obstacles. Mm -hmm. You had the ways that changed your vision uh, and and perception of the world. And that, that that defined for that purpose as an ontology and all kinds of things you would normally have paid attention to or dismissed or understood things like all of that was irrelevant right. they no longer existed right and and, <laughs> and and if something had come up we, we would have like uh, taken responsibility like okay well it's our fault or something in yeah. a certain kind of way but I contrast this with you know uh, the but lesser no, no, that's, that's actually an extremely important point you would take responsibility. Not only does the valuation imply, um, give rise to a way of seeing the world, it gives a, a, a rise to assist a, a set of ethics. Yes, yes, and, and, and that, yeah, and how we how we relate to uh, consequences. Exactly. Yes. But I, I, I contrast this because this comes up with uh, um, students, uh, you know, who are late to a meeting, a group meeting, you know, and. Uh, We'll sometimes ask them, well, if you bought a ticket to a movie, uh, would you be late to the movie? And and you know that, no, they wouldn't. They or, wouldn't. or if you bought a ticket to on a plane flight to Hawaii, yeah. would you be late for the, for the yeah. Uh, yeah. departure? And so there's ways in which people will do exactly what you're saying because the valuation is uh, so strong, and yet coming to a uh, spiritual meeting... Um, they don't have the same, and so it's just a good mirror to you know point, yes, point yes. about valuation. Yeah. I'd never thought of it exactly that way, but you're exactly right. So, yeah. so, so then people who come to spiritual meetings rigorously um, are demonstrating something in terms of valuation that is uh, uh, as much a practice as uh, any kind of meditation is. Yes, absolutely. That's a very, very good conversation for me, because, you know, at least for me, what's being clarified through this is the connection between ways of ways we experience the world, and the valuations, and what responsibility we do or don't take for our actions in that context. It pulls all of these three elements together. Yeah, yeah this is interesting where we've kind of ended up here. The, um, I mean, I've, it makes me want to, you know, kind of rethink a lot of what what my intuitions are about spiritual practice uh, in terms of like a matrix evaluation. Like, what what is it? You know, if you look at someone who's deeply committed, someone who's casually committed, someone who's not interested in spiritual practice whatsoever, it's like it's a set of valuations. Yes. Then what is it? What is it then? What is it that's being valued uh, in the deep commitment to a spiritual practice? What? Well, 
I, I can venture a response to that. Uh, as both of you know, I went through a fair amount of difficulty in the course of my spiritual training and spiritual practice. And not infrequently, I was asked, why do you keep going? Why don't you just do something else? Because you're having it. Well, who is asking that? that you? Uh, various people. I mean, sometimes quite close friends mm-hmm. who didn't like to see me in pain. Okay. Uh, so, it, it, and, and sometimes casual people like, this doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, it was a range of people. And, uh, and sometimes it was people that I would go to for help. And they'd well, why don't you just do, you know, what's the old story? Every time I hit my head with a hammer, it hurts. <laughs> well, why don't you stop hitting your head with a hammer? Uh, and so this led me to examine very deeply why I kept going. Because, in all honesty, the idea of not doing this just never occurred to me. So was this some blindness on my part? Was it some psychological compensation? So I went through a lot of very careful examination, sometimes with the help of a person that I could talk about these things with, but a lot of it on my own. And I couldn't find anything. And so what I was left with is, and you can choose your phrase here, the phrase that I prefer is uh, something in me is, was, was called or is called to, to do this. Mm-hmm. Whatever, you know, forget about the consequences or regardless of the consequences. And, and I trust that. And you can put that in terms of evaluation yeah. if you wish. Or you can say, you know, I just had to do it. Now, when you move it into that realm, that actually is what motivates an awful lot of artists. Mm, yeah. And, and people in other areas of life. And, uh, but what you're bringing out, uh, what, what that way of looking at things is, it's a way of getting really clear in yourself what is actually important to you. And, uh, and this covers a lot of the examples that we've touched on in this conversation. And I think that's, I mean, the, the, there's a Sufi saying, I think. Uh, it may come from another tradition, but uh, teachers understand that what is most important is motivation. You can say valuation if you wish. Yeah. And so that is the first thing they address. Well, I mean, the reason I asked you who was asking you this, yes. these questions is precisely because my teacher asked me that question. Um, and, I, and um, you know, there were moments when the thoughts came up, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> this, is, this, this sucks. This is, this is, this is, um, this is not, um, not the road, the high road to happiness or something like that. <laughs> and, um, uh, oh, you uh, thought it was? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, you know, there, 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 are, there are plenty of myths out there about, about spiritual practice. Anyway, yeah. uh, um, but it's, it's, it, was, <clears throat> it was very real for me because he asked, 
as well as other people would occasionally ask in the way that you were describing for you, you know, um, and and other people were just just kind of uh, mystified as to why I was doing what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. The fourth way has a concept called magnetic center, which I don't think Rob particularly likes this one much, but it's a, <laughs> it, it is a, it, it is, it points to that, uh, sense of valuation that someone, uh, comes to the work with. And, you know, if you have a strong magnetic center, nothing's going to stand in your way to, uh, uh, for you to fulfill on, uh, finding that, that which you need and uh, which to grow spiritually. But what they don't talk about is how or whether the magnetic center can be cultivated. It's it's almost as though, for whatever reason, I come into this world with the magnetic center, and uh, this is what I'm going to do. No, that's that that happens definitely. Well, that's that's the question yeah. I'm, I'm I'm exploring <clears throat> uh, is how how would you? Well, I'm going to offer three. Okay. There are some people come into the world and for whatever reason they just know what they're going to do and they do it. Some people encounter an experience uh, that breaks through all of the conditioning and they get in touch with something and they go and do it. And, but I think for most people, probably, it is something that can be cultivated. And whether it is cultivated or not depends, in my own mind, to a large extent on what we call in Buddhism the four immeasurables. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Because each, when you are on the receiving end of any one of those, an opening to the mystery is planted in you. Hmm. So and, and so, and something, and, and you may at some point in your life respond to that. So when someone, for instance, a person who helped me a lot with my earlier books and, and editing, she remembers saying something absolutely terrible uh, to one of her teachers in high school or something. And, and the teacher never commented, never responded, treated her with absolute equanimity, never changed in how uh, the teacher treated her anything. And that's what got through to her. Uh, in other cases, uh, it's one of the reasons why loving kindness and, and remembering your mother's kindness to you, you know, nurturing you in her womb, feeding you from her breast, and so forth, uh, and, and this, these unequivocal <laughs> acts of kindness, uh, uh, regardless of these subsequent psychological complications, uh, is, is often used as a paradigm in, in traditional uh, practice. Compassion is another. And there are many stories about that. And 
for other people, it is a celebration of your success. When you, when, when, oh, I did something. Wow. Because when somebody celebrates your success, it forces you to acknowledge to yourself that you did it. That's what opens the mystery. So this is what I've come to. I, I worked once with a person. And I was talking to him about loving kindness. And he said, you know, I can't remember a single instance that I ever received anything like that until I was 12 years old. And from what I knew of his background, I could, I could un- understand it, and I've heard other cases. And if you've grown up without any any experience like that, uh, it's, it, it affects you mm-hmm. uh, very, very deeply. So I've come to appreciate that uh, unless you're born in one of these ways or something happens to you that opens a door, then that's going to be very important. So the demonstration of... Um the mystery uh, to someone can actually plant a seed. That, I think, is what does plant the seed. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I think some people come in with a connection with the seed and may not need that. Yeah, but, I, it's, but, well, it's interesting but, because I, it, uh, yeah. uh, because what I was struggling with was the um, uh, even the way of framing, well, how do you change the magnetic center? Um, yeah, I mean, if you it's sort of a, a, a tautology because uh, if I have the uh, uh, motivation to change the magnetic center, I have a magnetic center. <laughs> no. it's a, so it's like yeah. so. So what you're really speaking to is part of the mystery of, uh, and and it also speaks to our obligation as uh, practitioners and senior practitioners that when we are able to demonstrate clearly something, it creates a possibility. I think it goes much further than that. Uh, as practitioners, and certainly as senior, if you choose that term, we are responsible for treating everybody as another human being. Yeah. And in treating, you know, I mean, courtesy is the social expression of loving kindness. Yeah. Yeah. That. That's. Uh, I mean, and it also speaks to the um, uh, the current moment. Uh, uh, socially, uh, certainly in this country, and I think in other parts of the world, where we have a, a deficit of the capacity to treat other people as human beings, there's a tendency yes. to demonize people who are your political opponents. But even within political organizations, they're busy demonizing people who don't have the same level of conviction to the uh, uh, current uh, ideology. Yeah, the ideology that they're supposed to have, and and so it's like objectifications of objectifications and objectifications, yeah. and conversation is not possible. Uh, and it's not possible because, and this goes back to where we started, I think, at least in my view, the valuations are not being made explicit. Yeah. Yeah, the valuations aren't explicit, um, uh, and yeah. and well, this is that's that's an interesting contention because um, then the question becomes: How do valuations? How how can they be made explicit? You use the example of the the CEO and the COO so, yeah. uh, earlier, and that's a clear example where that where. Um, there was a share. It seems to me that there was. You didn't say this, but there would have been a shared 
value, which is to improve the operation of the company. Exactly. Um, but they didn't start off, probably, uh, or maybe they did. No, I don't, no, I, they, I, I don't they, know. That's what enabled them to have the conversation, right? Right, yes. but right, but but uh, but I mean, in in um, in, this, in the current uh, state of the world that Stuart was alluding to, um, how do you how do you cre- how do you create a shared valuation, or how do you how well, do you um, how do you move to that place when it's not obvious to people? You're, th- this part of the conversation has illumined in a way that I didn't appreciate a, um, something, a, 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 something I witnessed at a talk um, 10 years ago. Uh, a friend and I had gone to hear this uh, Islamic person uh, address uh, an audience about religion and faith at UCLA. Turns out that the, uh, I learned later that he is a uh, Sufi who spends his time going back and forth between Cairo and New York trying to build bridges. Hmm. Hmm. And he, he, he was the uh, imam or whatever the appropriate title is for someone who at uh, the mosque at the World Trade Center, which isn't actually anywhere that close to the tra- World Trade Center. It's a complete uh, fiction of the right to slander him. In any event, after his talk... I was very struck to him because he was unapologetically religious. And I think my friend and I were the only white people in the audience think everybody else was either Iranian or Jewish or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the end of the talk, he uh, took a question and answer period in which people put questions on cards and an interlocutor sorted through them. And one of the questions, and th- this is about made me feel this is, this is an extraordinary person I need to pay attention to. One of the questions was, you have talked about God and Allah and uh, faith and all of these things. What do you have to say to us atheists? Hmm. And I thought, okay. And he said, without any hesitation whatsoever, then we need to talk about religion with a small r. There are things that you value in your life, and there are things that I value in my life. Let us talk about those values. And I just went, wow, what an answer. But you've just, the discussion that you two just engaged in has has, has illuminated that in a whole new way for me, that this is how you open the door. This is how you open the door. Yeah, it's interesting. uh, Um... I was um, um, telling you a story uh, before we started the conversation about uh, a, a business dinner I was at with some uh, colleagues, and one of the uh, uh, colleagues, someone I was meeting for the first time, was um, uh, you know, this was in Western Pennsylvania, so it was very, it's very uh, conservative territory, and. So I was asking about the Senate race, which right now is very exaggerated because of, uh, you know, you've got Dr. Oz versus John Fetterman, and, and it's kind of a, a, a study in extremes. But um, so, I, but I was doing, I was breaking canon because I was asking a political question. But it was very clear that uh, this person I was talking to, who was willing to actually respond, everyone else sort of st- <laughs> kind of effectively stepped away, was um, uh, conservative. 
and actually had a very different point of view than uh, I had. And so I've, I was interested in that because, you know, my tendency and, you know, what, what media I might pay attention to paints a certain picture. So I was interested in what this other picture was. But what was interesting was that I felt it was important for a number of reasons, uh, partly because I was a, a manager, you know, and, and I, I had to be very appropriate. But, but it was more on a personal level. It was, I was more interested... I sort of was coming from the point of that we probably share the same values. You know, we probably have very similar values. And so I was interested in how he saw things. And, um, but it was, uh, I hadn't really articulated it this way, but I was approaching him from a point of view of like shared values. Uh, and that would be the way in which I could have a conversation and actually go somewhere, uh, in that conversation that was different than talking about our beliefs. Yes, and um, say what you said. So, so yeah. So in this in this particular case, uh, uh, he, I was talking about listening to the media, and and uh, you know he was describing his complaining about how the media, which for him was the liberal media, uh, just flat out lies, lies about what's going on, um, and then I. And I said, yeah, I, I agreed with him because I think that's a, a, a fair uh, cop. But then I, I said, so, have, but that does, uh, I'm just curious, does it occur to you that, uh, you know, the Fox News is lying as well? And it, and it was like, he stopped. I said, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> and then I, and I went on to say, you know, like, you know, what, what the incentives are for the media, you know, that they're painting certain kinds of pictures in order to create reactions in their audiences and uh, keep people kind of uh, uh, focused and agitated and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if it went anywhere with him, but it was just like it was it was interesting that there was a mild shock because there wasn't a space of defense. There wasn't a space where he was defending anything. In the parlance that I was using, <clears throat> your question came from a position in which you were not judging him in any way. Equanimity. Right. And in asking that question, you planted a seed of equanimity. And that's an opening into the mystery right there. Right. Now, whether it goes anywhere depends on all kinds of factors. But that was planting a seed. Right. And, and very nicely done, in my humble opinion. <laughs> well, then subsequently I felt in the, like the next day of business meetings, it was important for me to give him affirming attention for the work that he was doing. Yeah. And, uh, and it, was, it wasn't contrived. It was genuine. But it was like I wanted to make sure that I was positive. Uh, you know, yeah. in a sense to nurture that. Yeah. Uh, but here, I mean, when you really scrape away everything, what you're doing is treating him as a human being. Exactly. Yeah. And not as the other, which is the poison that is... I mean, it's, it's the poison that humanity um, has because tribal structure is going back to earlier... Ep uh, stages of evolution of society uh, having a healthy sense of other was really important for survival <laughs> but uh, in today's world uh, it's it's become problematic in other ways and 
and I think this is something we've discussed in previous conversations. For me, uh, the only uh, quality that seems to cut through cultural conditioning is compassion, because there you can see pain. I think I would extend that now. Uh, you can see pain and suffering where it is, wherever it is, whatever the reason. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. it with compassion. But I think now I would extend and say that uh, anything which breaks through the tendency to see somebody else as other. Right. Uh, and that—that and that is one aspect of spiritual practice that is, I, I think, really... If that hasn't happened in your spiritual practice, something is missing. Well, I, I want to add there that I, I don't, I, it, it's not just necessarily the explicit expression of compassion or action from compassion, but also equanimity. Because when you when you when you're not judging someone else, mm-hmm. and they actually understand themselves not to be judged when they have the almost universal experience. Of being judged in in the grosser subtle ways, you know that that can provide the shock that you were discussing yeah. earlier. Yeah, and it's, it's remarkable. We have about eight minutes to go, so maybe we can uh, uh, recap here and uh, bring this uh, uh, to, to ground. Well, I'd like to start with a, a recap about uh, the magic of Adriana, because I think. You've been speaking a lot about the book uh, throughout the conversation. Maybe, maybe um, you can give our um, uh, audience a sense of what your purpose with the book was that would help them pull that together. My purpose in writing the book was to try to find a way in which to explain a tradition of training which I've been fortunate enough to receive uh, so that other people could uh, feel what it was like rather than understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and see if that strike any chord. I, I know an awful lot of practitioners who have w- been practicing Vajrayana for decades, but they still don't really have a feel for what they're doing. They're not quite sure why. And so that was one kind of person uh, to whom I was addressing. But uh, now that the book's finished, I can see that in another way, it's. I don't talk about it explicitly this way, but the, one of the subtexts in the book is how do you practice spiritually in a postmodern culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, and which goes back to where we started the, the theme of this conversation, where we have these different worldviews and that really can't talk to each other. And we've, I think what I've got out of this conversation and I very much appreciate is the importance of paying attention to motivation, motivation and values as, yeah. a, as a way of opening uh, uh, possibilities and uh, so that, that's 
is my attempt to, uh, and, and and I think it's the relationship, and uh, this is by your insistence on first using the word ontology, the connection between ontology and valuation. I think once you make that, then it becomes easier to regard ontologies as more fluid. Yeah. Uh, and not just in a conceptual way, but in a very fundamental way, that they aren't absolutes, which is how they tend to be regarded. And I think that could be very helpful for people. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of it as math- mathematically, it's like uh, you have different coordinate systems. And, uh, <laughs> Differentiable manifolds. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like some coordinate systems lend themselves to certain problems, and other coordinate systems uh, huh? lend themselves to say? other problems. <laughs> Next thing I know, he's going to be doing tensor calculus and fiber bundles. Yes, there you go. I love fiber, fiber bundles. And you, and, and you can follow him, but not me. Yeah. I'm not sure how many of our, uh, how many people in our audience. Could I'm follow. sorry, I just had to tease Stuart on that. Yeah, that well, that's, that's, okay. that's always that's always a good practice. You know, we were talking we were talking about uh, Donald Hoffman earlier, yeah. and uh, the second half of his book that I mentioned is a. Uh, mathematical explication of an idealist philosophy which is everything is consciousness and so then the model is a Markov chains in terms of uh, uh, perceptual systems and how how systems of awareness uh, uh, okay. arise so I you know I mean I know we're meant to be wrapping up but just <laughs> in, in, in one or two sentences how does that strike you um Oh, I, I enjoy it uh, just to, you know from the, the point of view of yeah from a conceptual point of view of whether or not it's actually whether or not the project can uh, be realized whether you can actually have a mathematical description of um, uh, consciousness. I mean, what they're trying to show is can you have a system of consciousness whose dynamics give rise to uh, a phenomenal uh, world and. They might have something there. Been like a chicken and an egg, isn't it? Uh, well, a little bit. I mean, it's, it's but it's, it's a noble attempt to switch the paradigm from uh, a materialistic paradigm, which tries to locate oh, everything in terms of uh, uh, material, and then they try to explain consciousness in terms of material systems. This is the other way around. The yeah. problem is to explain a material world in terms of consciousness. Well, this has never been debated in Buddhism. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, never. Of course not. <laughs> I mean, it's actually funny that uh, people even think about the Indian traditions as being uh, unified on this point, and they're not. Well, not even within the Buddhist world, they're not. Yeah, no, there's materialists and there's non-materialists. Uh, uh, there's idealists and there's mentalists and so forth. Uh, and the, the view that I've come to on that this refers to something we talked about in the course of this conversation is you have this experience and it's just so deep it just goes to the very core of your being that it, it has to be true and then you build a system out of it yeah. and everybody takes a system as a description of how things actually are and as far as I can tell every mystical spiritual, religious, and philosophical tradition has started with one person's experience mm-hmm. and trying to come to terms with that experience in some way, that they build the systems for that. But what's important here is not understanding, but having an experience that gives you that kind of relationship with life. Yes. And, and, and 
it can be different. And it, I, I think there is such a variety of, of experiences that can do that. There isn't just one experience. Uh, and and the way it shows up again touches on an earlier th- uh, thing that we discussed. Point that we discussed is that when you have that kind of experience, it gives rise to not only a way of experiencing the world, but a way of acting in the world. And and I I paid when students came to me with experiences. After a relatively short time, I started paying much less attention to the content or the experience as to the effect the experience had on them in terms of the way they saw things and the way they acted. And because that, that determined me whether it was a real, something solid or something transit. Uh, oh, that's great. Well, that, uh, I, I think that's a great place to end this. Um, so, okay. once again, thank you. Well, for, thank uh, you. No, yes, this we're is, very grateful. Yeah, it's a very, very good conversation. So, thank you very so much. More. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod. Among the topics explored in this conversation are the engagement in spiritual practice with beings and deities, how to negotiate when entering into the ontology of a spiritual system, how to pray, the valuation implicit and focused attention, and the release of control and the deepening of a spiritual practice. This episode is another installment in an extended conversation that we have been having with Ken over the last couple of years. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.